1: I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is The Way We Live Now. Today is Day 78, since some of us have been hugged, and Day 32 of this podcast. My guest today is chef, writer, and artist Omar Tate. Omar was the visionary behind a series of dinner pop-ups dedicated to exploring Black heritage and culture through food. It was a beautiful thing, a high-wire act. And then the pandemic hit. Omar, thanks for joining me to talk about the way we live now.
2: This is a, a great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Can you describe for me, in uh, as much detail as you can muster, where you are right now?
2: I am in my in my bedroom at my mother's house. There's one window that looks out uh, at at the backyard. That's it's, it's kind of covered by trees. Um, it's re- it's really nice though when the the leaves rustle and they, like, the tree flowers. So it's it's a nice it's a nice tree. But the window the window is gated. Um, and there's actually a uh the window is cracked because i think it was two years ago someone tried to break into our house so a window has a hole in it but there's two two window panes it's a, it's a double-sided window pane so there's no air getting in um but it does fill up with water when it rains and then like leaves get in it. so i have like a kind of like an aquarium <laughs> um, yeah so that's that's what i'm looking at and uh i've been hanging up art on my walls um Recently of things that I've done or things that friends have sent me and uh, I have a, a vision board of what I'm, mm. what I'm looking towards the future, uh, my personal future.
1: Good. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk to you about that. And so you're you're in Philadelphia, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And is, is this the house you grew up in?
2: No, no, no. The house that I grew up in was sold. Got it. But, okay. Yeah.
1: So before the pandemic hit, you had created a really remarkable pop-up. Um Dining experience called Honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. And it was an event and a philosophy. Can you tell us about honeysuckle?
2: I didn't really realize that it was a philosophy until people were telling me that it was. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, i mean the the whole philosophy behind it is is me really just um, going as deeply as I can into my own culture and absorbing as much of it as I can and finding myself reflected in it and creating food and dishes, uh, essentially language for guests to receive either at dinner or through written word or visual art. And I've learned that that this practice can be applied. I mean, it's almost like an anthropologist, but someone who doesn't have to be objective. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, that's pretty much what it is. And it's been going on for about three, three years. Um, I've been doing a pop-up. It started. From me looking at other chefs around me who were able to pull from these like deeply rich resources, or at least it appear to be deeply rich resources, that puts them into a light that makes them appear as innovative um, or inspired, or you know, um, and they were able to draw upon their own culture. But when I look at my own culture, previously when I looked at my own culture, um, the way that it's been taught to me was very rather painful. And so when I thought about the food that I was um, that I wanted to make. Uh, I didn't want it to represent pain. I didn't want it to represent things that weren't me. Um, Mm. Blackness is very complex, but if you look at what would you call African-American food or what would you call Black food in this country, it always goes to the South. And and I've, I've been born and raised in Philadelphia and my family hasn't been in the South in almost 100 years. So I just really wanted to focus on my truth if I was going to be creating food anymore. So that led me to stop looking at myself as a chef um, because like the word chef just felt really constricting um, and not free. And something about um, black identity is the never ending quest for freedom. And so me relinquishing the title chef and, and uh, looking at myself more, more as an artist. Um, I, staked, I staked a claim in, in freedom from the beginning so that I could do whatever I wanted without feeling like I needed to box or put it in particular boxes to be accepted.
1: Mm, I love that. Someone coming to dine or experience Honeysuckle, Like, what would the experience be like?
2: Well, the very first thing that people walk into, uh, most recently it was taking place at, at a penthouse in Wall Street. It doesn't matter where it takes place. The point is, is that I completely transformed the space into um, basically a uh, a a black household, a household that that has art on the walls, that's representative of black culture, the music that's playing is intentionally being played as representative of black culture. Um, It could be, it could be anything. I could be playing anything from John Coltrane to, to, I don't know, Bun B to Snoop, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, The point is, is like, I'm not, I'm not creating an atmosphere of music to suit anyone's particular tastes because that, you know, all of it needs to be accepted for any of it to be, um told honestly so uh the, the art may be beautiful the, the art may be ugly um the, the the art may be pretty um the music can be the same and and that that also happens in the dishes so um you walk into a space that's you know populated with all these images and um smells and stuff that are uh representative of black culture And then you sit down at the table, and the first thing that any and every guest has is Kool Aid that I make myself, Mm. and that introduction uh, is is intended to break down any assumptions that you may have had about this meal, (laughs) you know, uh, when you when you get here, because um, you are
1: literally drinking the Kool Aid, (laughs) (laughs) exactly, exactly. Mm.
2: So, yeah, that's the first thing that that we have, Um, and it goes back to me as a as a child. Having Kool Aid at dinner, and dinner being like a very nostalgic moment. And um, you know, when you watch shows like Chef's Table and things like that, the the beginning of the episode always starts with uh, them back home, or you know, it's a it's a it's a very narrow, concentrated moment of like what inspired this person to cook, or like what environment made this person cook. And so essentially, I mean, I think Honeysuckle uses nostalgia in the same way that these stories about other chefs use nostalgia to wrap people up in a story and, and make the meal be more about the food, and the food becomes a vessel to the heart of the person that's giving you the food.
1: So you were experiencing one of these, like, really, I don't know whether to call it a peak moment, but, you know, a, really, a moment that in the life of a creative person Uh, of an artist, you know, as um, a writer, a speaker, someone who is creating these uh, experiences for people, Um, kind of a peak moment, and then COVID-19 hit. It's so interesting, too, and, you know, sort of poetic and awful that the most recent venue or the most recent place that Honeysuckle was taking place was literally, like, near Wall Street, know like sort of <laughs> emblematic of New York City power base and um a, mm-hmm. a certain kind of culture in New York. Can you pinpoint the moment when you knew that uh that this was happening that, that you were gonna have to shut down and that covid nineteen was here
2: so up until you know mid march I was living in, I was living in New york City and um i, I was working with this company called Resident, uh, which is a platform that uh acquires or, or inhabits um residential units that are on the market and partners with chefs to do pop-up dinners in these spaces. So uh we build our calendar out like a month or two months in advance. We were actually um <laughs> we were deciding that we needed to build our calendars out two months in advance. And so we had done that. And uh there were several dinners that were on the docket to, to take place in March and on the docket to take place in April. And um I was feeling that I needed to get back home. You know, my son um, lives in Philadelphia. My entire family lives in Philadelphia, but my son, who's 12, by uh, sheer lives in Philadelphia. And I'm like, well, you know, COVID-19 is real. Like, you know, this pandemic is real. I started thinking about food insecurity. I started thinking about, like, all, all sorts of, like, anarchist kind of things possibly happening from as a result of, mm-hmm. you know, this pandemonium. So, um I was like, I need to go back home. And resident was still planning on having the dinners. These dinners were supposed to take place on March 23rd and March 25th. And I was like, well, I'm gonna have to call them and say that I can't, I personally just couldn't even do them whether or not they were still gonna be able to, they were still planning on putting them on. I was like, I have to, I can't be here. So they called me maybe the Friday before those dinners were supposed to take place. And they, I sent them an email prior and I told them that, you know, I wouldn't be able to, you know, everything's kind of up in the air. And they were like, So are you are, are you all set for next week? And I'm like, I'm in Philadelphia. Um and they were like, Oh. And uh there was there was an awkward silence. And there are other chefs that work for the platform. They said that, you know, we actually we weren't even gonna have you do this dinner. Um every everyone else actually just dropped out. That was that was even the case before we planned the dinner before the pandemic happened. We offered it to you because everyone else was unavailable and now we're kind of stuck because we we promised this client you know, that this dinner would happen and we thought that you'd be able to do it. And I said, well, I can't put myself at risk. Mm-hmm. That was when I knew the curtain had closed on the possibility of me, even even me engaging in um, dinners, much less anyone else.
1: Around what uh, date was
2: that? Um, I want to say it was around the 7th, March 17th. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. There's like this week in there where everything seemed to happen. You know, that mm-hmm. like it, it hit home and slowly but surely it was like, well you know some people are still doing these things other people aren't mm-hmm. doing them anymore and everybody had their comfort level until everyone pretty much got on the same page
2: we weren't ready i mean i attribute this that that week to the same week as the election in 2016 you know like we just we didn't believe it
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. no i remember i had, i had a, a a book that was just coming out and i remember calling my publisher and saying i I'm not going to be able to sign books. I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to be able to be like sitting there with people on a signing line and sign books. How how is this going to happen? And they were like, "Yeah, that's kind of all going away now." Right. One of the things you write, you write this really terrific piece in Esquire um, about honeysuckle, and there's this quote which is, "Honeysuckle existed like a Black American, underfunded, under the radar, yet creating culture." So one of the things that you that you Write about in your piece is that there is this kind of no man's land between uh, those who qualify for bailouts or stimulus checks and those who don't. And you write about hearing all of the big chefs and writers weighing in and advocating for justice in the restaurant industry, which is obviously an industry as a whole that's in a whole lot of trouble and no one really knows what the other side of this is going to look like. But then you also write about what you're seeing on the ground. So, what are what are you seeing on the ground, and what do you see for yourself and for other people that you're talking to uh, in terms of th- this period of time and the immediate future?
2: I think the you know the whole on the ground thing came about by me just feeling frustrated that uh, all of the conversations in food about saving food and food justice were happen- happening happening. Around me, you know. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like in a virtual room with all these people that I, I, I know Tom Calico personally. I know uh Kwame Onawachi personally, you know, I know I know these folks. I know JJ Johnson personally. These guys all have restaurants. And it sounded like to me, largely what they were advocating for were was some sort of like subsidizing so that things can go back to a normal. And that normal to me was everything that I was uh cooking against for like a better term you know um because those things should never have been normal to me in the way that restaurants functioned and excluded excluded the voices of not just um many restaurants that operate in their tier but excluded the vast majority of people who represent um food stewardship in general around the, around the world you know mm. most restaurants function as mom and pop places regardless of race or economy uh they function as mom and pop individually owned based places that run on very very tight and thin margins that don't have tables they have counters you know mm-hmm. um they don't have servers they have daughters and sons mm. you know they don't they don't have those things they, they don't they have family and they have friends and savings and passion and um not saying that the, these chefs don't have don't have passion or lack passion or lack concern for humanity or anything like that it's the capitalist structure that supports these restaurants um, that doesn't support the vast majority of people when I was growing up um I didn't know what fine dining was and, and anytime it was like represented to me it, it was positioned in such a way that was like excluding me eat, like eat, like in comedy or drama or whatever on television it was always kind of like a joke, you know, it's like, well, white people eat frog's legs and like <laughs> we, we don't eat that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it almost like was, was positioned to me in a way that like I shouldn't even be eating there. Cause it's not talking to me, even if I wanted to spend my money on it. And if I was spending my, my money on it, it would be an aggressive act to say that I belong here too, even though I don't like this shit. <laughs> so coming from where I come from and then moving into a space, a cultural space that didn't represent anything of where I came from. And having been in that, in that environment for 14, 15 years, trying to be creative and, and, and be a person, be a human in that space was really, really difficult. Sending this, you know, COVID sending me back home um, made me realize that I'd never left home in my heart. Um, and being able to draw upon the many resources of inspiration that I have been through Honeysuckle over the past few years has taught me to mine the value from what what appears to be decrepitness and it's not decrepit mm-hmm. there's lots of land available because people don't want to live in the hood there's uh, there's lots of infrastructure here that you know older older buildings that can be restored there's lots of people who are individual owners or entrepreneurial that sell stuff on corners um, people who have licenses and things like that so when I look at my community now, um, as opposed to when I looked at my community 15 years ago, it's not something I want to escape. There's this whole thing like, oh, you, you grow up, you make money, you leave the hood, you know? Um, and that's been going on for years. And now I'm like, no, every single thing, every single person that I see, walk, you know, walking up, down, up and down the street or on my bike adds something to what I want to build. I see thinkers, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I see I see people who are searching for pride, you know? And... If there's something to be proud of in your community, you want to take care of it. You know, I don't just see um, neighbors anymore; I see partners.
1: I love that. Let me ask you one last question: What's on your vision board?
2: <laughs> Lots of mental things, prayer and, and, and meditation. Um, seek, seeking, just seeking more uh, internal um, peace. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two uh, is focus. Uh, I, I want to do fundraising. I'm trying to, before this broke, um, I was planning on going on a tour selling bean pies. I'm at $100 a piece to raise $100,000 to buy a building that I no longer want. Hmm. <laughs> it was in the wrong, it's, in, it's just in the wrong place. Hmm. I still need the $100,000 to buy a different building that exists in my neighborhood right down the street from my mom's house. That used to be a, that used to be a supermarket that is now closed. and was the last source of fresh food for the neighborhood. So I I wanna turn it into a community center. Um, That's the way, it's still gonna serve food, it's still function as a restaurant, but when I say community center, it it, it becomes a a more dynamic space that would house other things that support the community in a way that restaurants, um, I I feel, should be doing, especially if they're like anchoring themselves in the community, which would include a a grocer, a meat market, um, a, a coffee space, and an educational like co-working space. Um, that I that I could transform into whatever it needs to be. I haven't seen a space like that before.
1: It's so interesting and beautiful that like during this time of you know, enforced not gathering, these ideas flower that have to do with with gathering.
2: But we're never gonna not gather. You right, know? Hum- right. Humans humans are social creatures. And if we if we don't, you know, studies have shown we just kind of die right. if we, we don't communicate, if we don't if we don't socialize. So I know that uh Gathering is going to to be changed probably forever, hopefully forever because if we if we don't if we don't change it, then we won't see a future it would be a pretty bleak one so the space that I want to create is one of intention and purpose and safety and security in terms of how we gather uh in terms of like what gathering should look like in terms of like what the purpose of this gathering is is it to is it to build or is it to to destroy you know mm-hmm. um, it's not. In my mind, there's really not a whole lot of gray area between that.
1: So would you say that this vision that you have now is bringing you some hope?
2: 100%. 100%. I think I was hopeless for about a week, maybe two. (laughs) Um, And I know that uh, Esquire article read to some folks uh, um, as bleak. But I think the message that I was really trying to send is that all the things that I thought that I needed I didn't, and everything that I needed was right in front of my face or inside of my heart the entire time, and I'm back there now.
1: That's a perfect note to leave people with, because there's so much hope in that. I so appreciate your your taking the time to talk to me, and I love what you're thinking about and and what you're going to do next. I can't wait to see it. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks, Omar. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Way We Live Now. Tell us the way you're living now. We want to hear. Call us on, you might want to get a pen for this. 909 713 8995 That's 909-713-8995. And record your story, and we might just use it on the pod. Also, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com/slash groups slash the way we live now pod. We are creating a community here, and we would love for you to join us. You can find me on Instagram at Danny Ryder. The Way We Live Now is a production of iHeartRadio. It's produced by Lowell Beth Bethann Macaluso is executive producer. Special thanks to Tristan McNeil and Tyler Klang. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.